Hey, Callow, how's it going? Hello, Sasha. I'm doing great. How about you? Pretty good. It's nice to hear your voice, and I've been enjoying the podcast episode so far. It's really great. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, we are in episode number eight, and I'm very happy to have you here. You're such a unique artist doing very special things for a while, so I'm very happy to have the chance to chat and learn more about your journey. Where are you right now, Sasha? Oh, well, likewise, I'm so excited to chat with you too. And thanks for the invite. I'm actually, I'm home. I'm in my studio right now. And then I'm leaving tonight actually for some travels. So you've got me right before I'm heading to the airport. What about you? Yeah, I'm also at home. I live in Spain. I think you live in, in New York. Am I right? Yeah, just outside New York City. But yeah, close enough. Awesome. And your upcoming travel, is it related to art? Are you going to an exhibition or a gallery? What is not related to your work? It is art related. I'm actually going to go work with my, um, I have a few different collaborators and I'm doing a project right now with Nathaniel Stern, who's a um, really interesting artist, very like-minded artist who I'm sure you know his works as well. I've done a few projects with him on FX Hash and Art Blocks, but we're working on physicalizing some of the poetry we've been generating together. So we're going to spend some time in studio with his team and hopefully get some interesting poem sculptures done in the next few days. I'll have to keep you posted and send pictures. That sounds super exciting. I have noticed a trend that the digital bringing all these, what we have been seeing over the past years, in the blockchain, I see more and more artists in one way or another bringing that to the physical world, which I find it exciting. But I haven't heard about this idea of poetry and the sculptures. It's really interesting. How does that work? How does the sculpture connect to the poetry? Oh, goodness. Well, yeah, there's a lot to get into there. But one sort of an interesting thing to note, actually, is so I have a physical practice that predates coming into the blockchain. And so does Nathaniel. I think for us, it feels really natural to do this. It's sort of like rounding out what we've been doing on the blockchain. We've been making in very different ways in our own solo practices. We've been making sculpture and physical prints and other analog pieces for a long time now. It kind of is a natural extension and very organic in a way, but a lot of the work that we're doing kind of involves thinking about language as a material. And a lot of what we're thinking about with the exhibition that we're preparing for now with these sculptures has to do with taking language out of the body and out from behind our screens and kind of turning it into concrete sculptural installations in different ways. I won't get too much into the details there, but it's really about looking at how language kind of helps us build our worlds and helps us sort of navigate through our surroundings and kind of using poetics to explore that. And Maybe when we get to talk about the verse first later, I'll talk a bit about the show that the verse first just had in Paris, because that show is actually all about how poems are both analog and virtual in a really interesting way. And by that, I mean that language is simultaneously this sort of immaterial thing that you say something and you utter a word or a sentence and it kind of disappears into the air and it's infinitely reproducible 
can be sort of instantly transmitted around the world as we're all experiencing right now. But at the same time, language is also deeply rooted in the physical. It's deeply rooted in the body. The way that words are shaped is dictated by the physiology of the body and has everything to do with the contours of the palate and the tongue and lips and all that. So there's something really interesting about language that it's both hardware and software in a way that I've been really fascinated with for a long time. So I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be exploring poetry on the blockchain and in Web3 is because it seems like the maybe the perfect place to explore how language has always been a way for us to interface between our physical selves and our conscious thinking and our intellect and the cerebral parts of us that make us conscious humans. Yeah, that sounds very exciting, Sasha. I will really like to get deeper into your upcoming show, but let's maybe go back to the beginning. So for those that don't know you or aren't 100% familiar with your journey, you are an AI poetry. Is that how you call what you are doing, an AI poetry? Is that right? Yeah, it's definitely a piece of what I do. So normally, it's, I wear a lot of hats. I think all of us in this space do. So it's sometimes hard to boil it down. But um, I usually say that I'm a, a poet, I'm a language artist, and an AI researcher. And all those things kind of come together in different ways. But I've actually just been a regular writer and a regular poet for as long as I can remember. So long before I was writing with AI, I was just writing in a more old-fashioned sense and studied literature and language when I was younger and have always really been interested, not just in writing, but also in technology and in art. And like all those things have always been really deeply embedded in my life and in the way that I think about the world. I grew up in a house that really loves books and art and Because of that, I think I really was always drawn towards poetry that had kind of a visual component or poetry that wasn't just about language itself, but about sort of the presentation and the aesthetics of the word. So that was always really important to me. And at the same time, I've always been fascinated by science and technology and math. I actually was a better math student in school than I was an English student, which is kind of a weird, maybe counterintuitive thing. But I really have always been fascinated just by the experience of what it feels like to engage with emerging technologies because so many of us, all of us really, in different ways, to different extents, have been through so many shifts in the kinds of technologies that are important to our daily lives. I've been writing poetry and other forms of, I've been writing essays and short fiction as well, but really focusing on poetry about what it feels like to sort of be experiencing all these digital transformations that are happening around us in real time. And that brought me over many years to the study of natural language processing and to using artificial intelligence as sort of an amanuensis to help me write, to collaborate with a non-human entity using tools like GPT. And it's been sort of revelatory for how I think about writing and what I think about poetry and the experience of being an author. I definitely identify more as an AI poet, but I also like to sort of ground that in the fact that, yeah, I've been writing for a really, really long time in lots of different ways. And this is kind of the latest hmm. incarnation. Right. And when you said you studied 
natural language processing and when you became a writer. I know you went to Harvard and Oxford, and I was wondering, what did you study there? Did you study natural language processing and writing and art? Or as you said, you also enjoyed uh, math and science. I was curious, what did you study in those universities and what did you learn? What was the most important things you learned uh, as an artist that you think could help other artists? Ooh, yeah, those are really great questions. I studied language and literature. I did not study anything related to AI or computer science or anything really in the wheelhouse of AI other than the fact that I was really focused on writing and words and authorship, which I now know has a lot to do with how AI systems work, because of course they are trained on lots of information, including text. When I was in college, I studied modernist and postmodernist literature. So again, like, yeah, not terribly related to what I'm doing now with technology, but in retrospect, I do see a really strong through line between the things that I was studying and the kind of work that I'm doing now. I was, as an undergrad, I was really interested in postmodernism and studying the work of people like Thomas Pynchon, but at the same time going all the way back to like the origins of the picaresque novel and looking at Don Quixote and Cervantes, who had been writing hundreds of years before. And I think what the books that I really was drawn to had in common was just sort of breaking the traditional mode of storytelling and trying to create a kind of narration that felt a little bit more authentic or a little newer to the contemporary experience. That was in undergrad. And when I graduated I, and I went to Oxford, as you mentioned, I studied modernism and I focused specifically on James Joyce. He's one of my favorite authors. I really adore Ulysses, which is a strange book, but one that I've read many times. And I really love it because it also is a book in which Joyce has just sort of hacked language and hacked a lot of the conventions that surround how you should tell stories or what a book should look like, what a novel should look like, what language should appear like on the page or how a character should sound. Just so many things that we sort of normally take for granted about literature and someone like Joyce came along and completely pushed back on all of it and challenged it in a really exciting way. So I think I've always been drawn to that kind of an experimental mode of storytelling, specifically with people like James Joyce and some of my favorite poets like T.S. Eliot, I also realized in retrospect that a lot of them were acting almost like large language models in that they were bringing together lots of different voices and different characters and different styles and vernaculars and lots of information from disparate sources and kind of weaving them together in order to present sort of a diversified idea of what a narration could be. And I didn't know that at the time, I wasn't studying AI then, but I think that's always just been baked into the kind of um, language crafting that I, that I love. It's really about sort of the pastiche and sort of a conglomeration of lots of different sources and how that reflects so much of the multiplicity of the modern experience in a way that traditional narration, traditional storytelling, a traditional kind of protagonist doesn't necessarily do justice to. So yeah, again, it was all language and literature based. I took one poetry class when I was an undergrad. It was the only creative writing class I've ever officially taken in a school environment like that. But it was with a poet named Henri Cole, who's a wonderful poet who actually is close friends with one of my favorite artists, Jenny Holzer. 
in that class, I heard my teacher on recall talking about working with Jenny Holzer and giving her poems to turn into artworks. It was sort of my first moment of really kind of understanding what it would mean to be a poet, really collaborating with an artist in that way. It got me thinking a lot about the role of poetry in the arts and why it was that someone like Henri Cole couldn't have a poem of his own considered worthy of being in an art gallery. But once the poem was sort of interpreted by an artist like Jenny Holzer, then it became a piece of art. So those are all things that have kind of been seeds that have, you know, were planted long ago and that have been germinating over time. That's also kind of a big area of my focus and my interest here in Web3, both in my own work and in what I've been doing with the Verseverse and my two co-founders there as well. Yeah, that's very interesting hearing all these examples that inspire you and all these poets. And by the way, for everybody listening, all these artists, all these poets, all these works that Sasha is mentioning will be included in the description. So it will be very easy for you to find if you don't know any of them. And also remember, if you cannot stay here for the whole hour, or if you missed the beginning of this episode, after a couple of days, I'll share all these recordings, all these Twitter spaces through my newsletter and my podcast. So you can listen at any time later. And by the way, Sasha, I was curious because it seems like early on you found this fascination for writing, but specifically for poems and technology and postmodernism. And I was wondering, when you decided to go into this route, when you decided to start writing, to start creating poems, and then you started to mix the technology AI, how far away was that from your discovery of NFTs? When, when exactly did you start to create your own poems, your own piece of artworks? And, and when did that connect or how did you connect that to the blockchain and this medium? Yeah, that's a good um, question as well. So I guess the answer is I've been making poems with AI longer than I've been active on the blockchain. I started making, well, going back even further, I guess, I mentioned before, I've been writing for a long time. I've been publishing poems for a long time too in traditional journals that sort of I don't know. I think if you're a writer, if you're a poet, that's kind of what you're taught to aspire to is submitting your poems to different literary journals and then getting published there. And I had done that for a while and my poems were getting more and more kind of preoccupied with speculative and emerging technologies. I found myself just feeling like there was a bit of a disconnect between a lot of the things that I was writing about, the subjects just being like kind of forward facing and and then the, this process, this kind of antiquated process of like submitting a poem and waiting for months and months to get a response from an editor and then waiting months and months and months for the poem to maybe get published. It just, there were a lot of things that felt like they were maybe out of sync with the, with the way that I wanted to write and the way that I wanted to publish. So I started experimenting with making digital poems and multimedia poems and things where I could animate text and sort of self-publish by putting things on social media, for example. I realized pretty quickly that if I was making poems as like MP4s, for example, 
that made me really happy. And it really helped me sort of get deeper into a lot of the themes that I wanted to explore. But it also meant that a lot of editors were not going to be able to publish these poems. It's changing a little bit now, but definitely like back even a few years ago, there were really strict policies about what, what you could submit to a magazine and really kind of putting parameters around it and not allowing artwork or anything that sort of violated the standards. So like I said, I ended up just kind of posting a lot of these digital poems on social media. And that kind of organically just led me to kind of get into conversations online with a lot of folks who are in the new media world, much to my surprise, because I really was used to kind of moving more in the poetry circles and in the writing community. But I think because my work was kind of skewing more towards text-based art in some way, I started to meet curators uh, in new media in particular, who were interested in the aesthetics of the work, because they looked like they were more of a piece with um, some of the, the aesthetics that we associate with digital and new media art. But also because um, a lot of the things, again, that were um, embedded in these poems had to do with posthumanism and digital immortality and a lot of these themes that have really been front of mind for me for a long time. And I started to get curated or get invites to be curated into art shows, which was really exciting for me because, again, it was something that I had not really expected. And I, I think among the first people to ever curate my work were Elena Zavlyev at Kadaf, who has been a huge supporter and is, I think, responsible for kickstarting the careers of so many amazing artists. Just Konatzer, who was working with Kadaf and is the founder of an amazing studio called Studio As We Are. And also Sofia Garcia, who I've known for a really long time. And they were all really supportive really early on when I, to be honest, didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> I was just sort of sharing things because it was fun and it was meaningful to me. And they kind of slowly showed me the ropes a little bit and brought me along into their world. I was enjoying that for a while. And then at the end of 2020, which was, of course, that first horrible year of the pandemic, when a lot of things were even more so than before shifting online and shifting into the virtual realm, one of those curators, Jess, who I just mentioned, invited me to be part of a show that she was curating in the metaverse with One Time Square. And it was this big New Year's Eve kind of extravaganza that One Time Square was putting together, One Time Square in New York, where they do the, the annual ball drop every year. But because of the pandemic, we weren't allowed to have an in-real-life celebration that year. So instead of doing something in person, Jess and One Times Square and the other folks involved created this metaversal kind of experience of Times Square where people could come and gather from all over the world. They put artwork up on all the billboards in this virtual rendition of Times Square, and they created this massive art installation Jess asked me to to be part of that and contribute some poetry, but she also asked me if I would write a poem as a manifesto for the event about what it meant to be celebrating together in the metaverse after such an intense year. And I I wrote this manifesto and I joined this show. And for the first time I really kind of visited this art exhibition, I think was the first time I ever really went into a metaverse in that way. Like I hadn't really explored it before. And it was really eye-opening and really exciting for me. And most kind of important part about it for me was that a lot of the folks who were in the show were digital artists who were already minting NFTs. And this was like 2020, so a little bit like before all the craziness really kicked off in the beginning of March. When I saw what they were doing and I kind of understood the potential 
for creatives like them um, on the blockchain, it got me really fired up and really excited because I realized it could be a great place for me to explore with my own practice. And I was also really intrigued because everyone else in the exhibition, everyone else in that environment, they were visual artists and there were no other writers, there were no other poets. And it kind of took me aback and I just started casting around trying to find other poets who were making multimedia work or who were potentially trying to explore what was happening on the blockchain. And there really weren't many at that time. So it just sent me kind of down a rabbit hole and I ended up meeting a lot of great people over the the next year or two. But that was the beginning of it really was getting involved in that first show in the metaverse um, and learning about NFTs through a lot of the participating artists who were doing some incredible stuff pretty early on. Yeah, there's so many interesting things from what you said. Uh, first, I found it very fascinating that you were kind of drawn into the NFTs and the digital art from your creations that had these sort of aesthetics that were not purely words that were not written, but had different aesthetics. And I find that interesting. You didn't kind of come to this space purely because of your writing, but it was more because of the mixing of your creations with the different visuals. That's interesting. That's, I think, something to keep in mind. I've seen many art, other writers exploring these sort of combinations, right? They are writing, they are creating poems, but they are also mixing it up with different aesthetics. I think many of your creations now are that way. Also, uh, I know your collections on FX Hash are like that. But you mentioned two terms that I actually find very interesting, and I have a sense of what they mean. You mentioned post-humanism and digital immortality. How will you explain those currents, Sasha? Because those are very niche. They are very new currents, in my opinion. Maybe I am wrong. But those terms, what is it when you try to explain someone what, that you are an artist working with post-humanism and digital immortality. How do you phrase, how do you explain somebody that is not very in, the, in this space or related to what you are doing? What, what is the best way to explain this in simple terms? When you put it that way, they definitely sound like pretty strange terms. And I know they've been off-putting to some people who I've had interesting conversations with along the way, especially as a poet encountering these things. Maybe to talk about digital immortality first, one of the first projects that I got involved with related to AI was sort of an interesting poetry project with a humanoid android. The android is named Bina48, and Bina stands for Breakthrough Intelligence via Neural Architecture, 48 exaflops per second. Bina48 is this basically like a really fancy AI-powered chatbot that was built, I think, in 2010 by Hanson Robotics, which is the same company that built Sophia Robot. If anyone here knows Sophia, she's sort of like the famous robot from Hanson. But Bina48 is her cousin, I guess. She's been around for a while, but I had read a bit about her and I had seen some really interesting videos of conversations between Bina48 and a really brilliant artist who is also focused on AI named Stephanie Dinkins. And she has this famous series called Conversations with Bina where she talks to this robot. And I saw that and I was really intrigued and wanted to know more about how these conversations were facilitated and 
who was involved in training this robot and how did this work and what did she know? What did she not know? I just, I got very interested in learning more about her. And I also got really interested in her because of her backstory or her origin story. In a nutshell, she's based on a real human whose name is also Bina. This robot was basically created as an experiment to see if that human, Bina, could be preserved in some form via software, basically through conducting hundreds of hours of interviews, this human Bina sort of downloaded everything that was really important about her personality in theory. All that information was transcribed and like turned into this massive data set that was then uploaded to this chatbot. And essentially this whole project was meant to sort of see if it was possible to use data, to use sort of a person's stored memories and stored experiences via that kind of written, tagged, labeled information and empower it with um, with AI, empower it with a neural network and kind of flood it with other sources as well. And then basically animate it in a way that would enable someone to speak to this chatbot and feel like they were interacting with the real human or get the kind of information that they would think to get if they were interacting with the real human. The whole kind of thrust of this project was to sort of explore whether we could sort of become digitally immortal via essentially avatars that were trained on our memory and our data and our information. And I just got really sort of preoccupied with that idea. It sounds very strange and very sci-fi, but coming back to sort of the fundamental bit of it, I was really intrigued by this question of how much of our human experience is memory. And if we're able to sort of write down the things that are really important to us, or if we're able to archive or diarize or preserve that information in, in some sort of accurate way, then what does that mean? And it made me think a lot too about the role of writers and the role of poets who are sort of cultural memory in that they're tasked with archiving really important ideas and stories and moments in history and all these things that are really precious to us as humans. And poets are sort of charged with writing these in a way that will be remembered and will be passed down through generations and will transcend times. I really just got very inspired by thinking about the relationship, as I saw it, between this quest for digital immortality that was being pursued in places like Silicon Valley. And in Bina's case, Bina is actually housed in the facility in Vermont, which is another story. But thinking about that quest for digital immortality on the one hand and how that feels so futuristic and sci-fi and honestly like a little crazy. But then on the other hand, thinking about how poetry, this thing that I love so much that I've been practicing for so long is in a very literal sense, a way that many figures throughout history and many stories throughout history have been immortalized essentially. And how when I read a poem by Sappho say, or Catullus or any of these ancient poets who their voices have been preserved for thousands of years or hundreds of years or whatever the case may be, we're kind of time traveling or they're, they're able to sort of live beyond their own mortality in a way and continue to have their voice exist in the world. That to me, I think was a really interesting link that didn't seem like it had been really explored. And so I just kind of I don't know, threw myself into that and began working really closely with Bina48 and her team, mentoring her on poetry. 
and exploring kind of that link between poetry and digital immortality. Sorry, that was a long ramble, but no, that, that, do you know what I mean? <laughs> that, was, that was amazing. I mean, it's fantastic to hear an artist uh, explaining such a deep concept. What's more exciting is finding an artist like yourself, which has such a clear vision. It's such a complicated concept to explain, but that you have, you found that vision, that definition of what you're doing. It was thinking a bit because I'm a data scientist. I studied in data science, but unfortunately not for creating art. It was more business focused, like how to use data to help companies solve their problems, etc. And I find it very exciting when I chat with artists like yourself, AI or code artists that are capable of creating such exciting and diverse technical setups. They are exploding data sets and they are exploring technology in a creative way. I find that super exciting. My question was related to your setup, to your technical setup, but I'm also interested in maybe there is no link, maybe there is. How does your technical setup and your models, your customized models and whatever you are using these days and that you have used in the past, how does that relate to these concepts you just mentioned, the digital immortality, post-humanism. Is there a link? Do you find a connection? It's a kind of a complex question, but maybe we can start with your technical setup. What are you using these days? Are you using anything in particular that you can share? Sure. I definitely think there's a link, but would love to return to that piece of it too. Well, like I said, when I started, I was coming from much more of a language and literature background and didn't know as much about code or about AI. So really a huge portion of me kind of getting my feet wet in this world was just having spent years before even beginning to think about actually researching AI or beginning to use language models or anything. A lot of this was really just my own fascination with these subjects and reading about post-humanism and reading about AI and my bookshelf. Well, I have a lot of books. I collect, I don't think I've ever thrown a book away. I love books so much, but my bookshelf here in the office is full of things by like Nick Bostrom and Ray Kurzweil and Ellen Ullman and all these books that have to do with technology in different ways. And so like I had a really robust foundation in a lot of the concepts and a lot of sort of the ideas underlying the technologies that I wanted to play with. And I think that that was really important. I remember reading a book called Virtually Human by Martine Rothblatt. When I started working with BNF48, Martine is involved in that project too. Virtually Human had a lot of, a lot of ideas that to me were just, my mind could not stop racing while I was reading that book because the ideas were just so enormous. And I couldn't get over the fact that when I tried to bring some of these topics into, I had like casual poetry workshops and stuff when I was living in Brooklyn and would like share things with friends and stuff. And I would always get pushback with people saying things like, well, that's not really poetry. That's like, that's sci-fi. I actually had one poetry workshop leader at one point, who's a really famous Pulitzer Prize winning poet whose work I really love. But he read something that I was writing that had to do with AI and basically gave me a lecture on how poets are supposed to focus on the human and that I was sort of taking like a cheap way out by focusing on technology instead. And I just, I couldn't quite square that with the things that I was reading because all the technologies that really fascinated me had to do 
not just with like gadgets or wasn't just like innovation for the sake of innovation. Like these are all technologies like digital immortality and artificial wombs and neural implants and all of these really big sort of transformational changes are really sort of changing how we are as humans. And they're sort of making fundamental updates to the human operating system in ways that poets are supposed to be writing about and that artists are supposed to be paying attention to and thinking about. So it was just bizarre to me. In a way, I still sort of have trouble understanding that when I was beginning to grapple with things like natural language processing, which is all about language and using systems that create language and is all about sort of thinking through how language and thought and consciousness are related. I couldn't believe that writers in my peer group weren't more fascinated by it because it's exactly the kind of thing that you'd think poets would be just obsessed with. Anyway, all of which is just to say I had done a lot of reading and research and thinking about all these things. And then I think like in maybe it was in 2016, 2017, there were a couple really interesting AI related projects that came out. Like there weren't a lot of literary AI projects, I think at that point, but I remember encountering a few by a guy named Ross Goodwin, who I became sort of friendly with over social media. I was just really fascinated with his work with AI. He wrote a screenplay with AI and he actually did a project inspired by the Beats and by Jack Kerouac where he outfitted his car with an AI system and essentially turned his car into a pen and he drove drove around in the US the data from that drive sort of became dynamic data that prompted this AI to write a novel kind of inspired by Jack Kerouac so I saw that for example and I saw maybe a handful of other writers Warren Branwyn was one, Alison Parrish. Like there were a few really interesting creative coders who were really far outside the poetry scene, really far outside the traditional publishing scene, but they were doing really cool stuff with language that none of the poets I knew had ever talked about. I'd never seen any of these people published in any of my go-to literary journals, but I just started to follow what they were doing and go down the rabbit hole and read the essays that they were writing and the interviews they were giving about their work. And that just led me to start learning about this thing called natural language processing, which I'd never really heard of before, but which is basically the intersection of linguistics and computer science and AI in a nutshell has to do with training intelligent systems to write like humans, basically to put words together in a way that is informed by and that is influenced by how humans speak. And yeah, I just, I started to get very intrigued by this, started doing more research. And at that point, didn't really know much in the way of coding, wasn't super technical. So the first time I actually tried to generate a poem, to generate a text on my own, I actually used an interface called Talk to Transformer that was a kind of an off-the-shelf, easy-to-use interface created by a coder named Adam Daniel King, And it was rooted in GPT-2, so the now distant ancestor of ChatGPT. But the minute I started using that system, my eyes went wide open and I was instantly hooked. It was just so interesting. And that was just sort of an initial off-the-shelf version. Over time, I started to, through research and kind of self-study, I learned how it was possible through different interfaces and different approaches to create custom data sets, essentially just kind of compiling information in different ways, compiling examples of writing, compiling prompts and completions, and and kind of putting them in a format that you could upload to these language models in order to kind of give them even more direction than they already had. 
by learning how to do that, I was able to start training the underlying model on my own writing. And I started creating training data sets that were basically just rooted in my own manuscript and my own research notes, and then started adding in texts that were influential to me, my favorite poets, essays that were important to me, newspaper articles that were relevant to the topics I was writing about. And it basically was a huge research project. And I used all that information to start fine tuning. Most of this was through open AI, but I've dabbled around through others over the years too. Wow, that's Fantastic. I didn't know that's how you train your data. So you're actually creating your own text, but also using books and other sort of literature that you find exciting, you, that you like. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't exactly know how you were training your models, and that, that answers my question pretty well. Is that how you created your book, Sasha, the technology, which, by the way, I have it right now here next to me. I, I was lucky to get a copy from you. I think it was in New York City and it's signed. I'm really happy with this book. How did you actually create this book? For those that aren't familiar, it's a, a book that Sasha wrote. I think it was one or two years ago. Is that right, Sasha? Or was it 2022? Yeah, it came out in 2021. Mm -hmm in England, and then it came out in the US a few months later. But basically, like the backstory with technology is that it's a hybrid book, it's a poetry collection, but it's also an art book. And it kind of brings together my poetry practice with my visual art, my visual poetry practice as well. It started as a manuscript of 100% human analog poems that I had been writing for a few years. I think I started writing the poems in the original draft, maybe in like 2014 or something. I started publishing poems from it in 2016. And I don't know, like as many writers know, you have manuscripts that sometimes sit around for a while and you don't quite know what to do with it. So I had this manuscript of poems. And when I started to really, you know, learn more about natural language processing, it started to dawn on me that I could take all this material that I'd written and then I could maybe figure out how to turbocharge it or how to empower it with AI in a way, and kind of use AI to help me finish the manuscript. And so the book itself is sort of rooted in my own analog manuscript, my own writing, but then is sort of like a conversation, like a dialogue with this third sort of transhuman voice that is created at the intersection of my voice and GPT-2 and then GPT-3. It's really sort of an intentional dialogue to show how a language model generates language based on its inputs. I guess you have to read it pretty closely to, to see a lot of the echoes, but I obviously I know the book so well, so I can see where there's places with where the language model has picked up on certain words that I've used elsewhere in the manuscript, or it's picked up on certain stylistic things that are embedded in my own poetic voice, or the way that I would structure a sentence, or the kind of metaphor that I would reach for. I can kind of see where that's coming through. But at the same time, because this co-author, this AI co-author of mine is also rooted in a large language model that's trained on tons of other information that I myself don't know, that I don't have access to, it's also kind of allowing me to go beyond my own imagination and to augment my own authorial intelligence and to write things that I, as an analog writer, could never write. So it's really a conversation between the human poet and the post-human poet. And I think in a way I'm both, but it really 
felt like it was an important thing for me in the book to kind of show them together. There's a lot of poetry projects that use AI that I've seen where, or not even poetry, but there's some famous AI prose projects too, where the entire book is generated by AI. But I think for me, what I'm really interested in fundamentally is in the collaboration between human and AI, because I see that as where a lot of the value in these systems comes from. So the book is meant to be an embodiment of that and really to show how there is no AI voice without this underlying human voice and human vision. At least that's, that was my aim. That's what I hope it has embodied. But it's funny to me now because the, the tools that I use to create that are already considered so antiquated. I'm excited to keep kind of pushing forward with GPT-4 and other iterations. I think when I look back at technology, it feels a little bit like an artifact of that moment when, I don't know, it was right before, right before things kind of went crazy in the world of AI, but it's an artifact of that moment when those language models were just beginning to creep into culture in some really interesting ways. Yeah, definitely. This was read and you use ChatGPT uh, Chat 2 and 3 for this book, if I'm correct. Now, ChatGPT, we are at number four, but it's improving super fast. I've been using 3.5 uh, a lot for different things and recently got access to ChatGPT 4. And yeah, it's fantastic. So you can only think about the future in terms of what you have been doing for many years, I think for you, it must be very exciting to, to see how these, all these technologies are evolving. And as you said, it's about the collaboration with these technologies, these, let's call them machines. I cannot imagine all the things that you can explore from now on as the technology keeps getting better. And in terms of exploring and, and creating your art, I know, Sasha, that you travel a lot. You just mentioned that early on when we started, that you're about to, to travel again. And for those artists that are maybe reluctant to travel or don't put that much effort into going to exhibitions, going to galleries, meeting collectors physically and, and other artists, what would you say? Do you think that's an important part for you in terms of getting inspiration, in terms of showcasing your art? And how do you balance the creation part, being in your studio, as you said, or collaborating with other artists in their studios and the traveling? How do you balance that? Because I, I've seen you in different places. I know you, you're you traveling a lot. And, and I'm wondering, how do you balance that, the traveling and the creation part? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know if, if I figured out the answer. Well, I guess, logistically speaking, you know, I had finished at least that one book by early 2021. I was going through revisions and stuff, but I'd been working on it for a really long time. So I had sort of planned after that to do like a mini book tour and stuff. Some of it got derailed during the pandemic and things took a while to get back online. But I was excited after having sort of been we all were a little bit quieter and more isolated and stuff. I was kind of excited to go out and talk about these things that I've been thinking about for so long with other people. So I don't know, there's a part of, so much of my work is rooted in research and is really rooted in a lot of solitary work. I think that's probably true for a lot of writers and a lot of artists. I'm very introverted and by nature, I love to spend time by myself. I love nothing more than just to like be by myself with a book or to be with my computer having a writing session with technology. But I really also, I'm doing this because I love thinking about the ideas that I'm exploring in my writing. 
And just the way that I love using AI as a collaborator to kind of broaden my own understanding of these things, I really enjoy being in conversation with other really smart people who bring their perspectives to it as well. Whether that perspective is like more from a technological point of view or from an art and aesthetic point of view or from a philosophical point of view, I think when it comes to AI in particular, this is such a seismic moment and such a transformative shift that it's something I really am thinking about almost all the time, reading about all the time. There's just so many kind of questions in my head and so many thoughts bouncing around all the time that I really enjoy being able to have a dialogue with someone else and not just kind of be stuck in my own head, which I think ultimately is something that reflexively is really important about AI and about these language models is that they really sort of enable a kind of dialogue and they enable a kind of back and forth. And that's the process that for most of us is what enables us to kind of hone our ideas and kind of sharpen our sharpen our sensibilities and kind of figure things out. I like that part of it. I think it's really important for me. I think just as a baseline, one of my favorite things to do when I travel is to go to museums and is just to see art and to see the different ways that art is installed or the different materials that are being used or just to kind of wander through decades or hundreds of years of shifting ideas about what art is. And that's always really inspiring to me. I don't think I would ever be able to come up with a single good idea if I didn't read books and go to museums. I think those are really important things to me. So I look at the opportunity to travel as an opportunity to get really inspired and to basically put more data into my mind file. In a way, it's something that I think about more and more now that I've been working with AI in this way. I think quite a lot about this question of like creativity and originality and where human inspiration comes from. Contrary to this idea that you can be a writer sitting alone in your room and just like expect the muse to like come visit you in this blue flash or whatever. I think the more I engage in this, the more I think about my own mind and imagination and the more I work with machinic imagination, the more I realize that originality is a composite of lots of different ideas and influences and inspirations that they're in the mix and they're there and they're available to you. And it requires you kind of bringing your own unique lived experience to this canon of cultural memory and cultural touchstones. And so as much as I can, if I'm able to like go out and dip into art and culture and conversation, I know that that's where I'm going to have my most valuable ideas. So that's really an important part of all of it to me. And yeah, I remember, Callow, we've met in a couple different countries now at this point, but I think last time was in Brooklyn at, at Proof of People. And that's a great example of where there's just really exciting conversations happening at the intersection of art and technology and music and culture and all the things that all the things that come up in those kinds of conversations and in those kinds of venues are exactly the kinds of things that I'm thinking about and that I want to think more about. I definitely consider that a big part of my practice. Yeah, I can totally relate that much as an artist, but as I'm trying to write, to find interesting topics, to discover artists, to understand what collectors are interested in, definitely when you go to these events, and, and it doesn't mean you have to be traveling worldwide, going from one continent to another, but just being around, as you said, museums, exhibitions, galleries, and chat with people if they are related to the digital 
and the generative and the AI movement probably will be more exciting if you are into that. But just being surrounded by like-minded people, in my case, and as, as you just said, for you too, give you a lot of inspiration. In my case, it's like different topics, different ideas that I could talk about, write about. And yeah, I can see for, for an artist, it's same, not exactly the same, but yeah, you get my point. You can get inspired in different ways. And Sasha, we are getting close to the hour, but there is a very exciting project that you have co-founded. And it's, again, similar to your art practice, is very unique as well. And it's, in my opinion, is celebrating poetry and celebrating the digital medium in this sort of niche uh, movement, which is not sure if we can call it NFT poetry, maybe digital poetry. Can you tell us a bit about the verse verse and, and what you're trying to do there? Yeah, I'd love to. And thank you for asking about it. That's really kind. So yeah, the verse verse is, you're right, we should probably just call it like a hybrid poetry gallery at this point, because it's not just NFTs, but it's a poetry gallery. So it's a space that's really dedicated to exploring the language arts and sort of enabling writers to experiment with different technologies and not be afraid to push the limits of language in, in lots of experimental directions. And I think really maybe more accurately than calling it a gallery, we're sort of a collective at this point, a, a kind of a, a hearty band of writers and poets and also technologists and artists and curators and collectors. We're all really kind of all in the mix together who really love poetry and want to celebrate the role of language in the arts and kind of ensure that writers are part of this movement on the blockchain just as much as other art forms are being celebrated and elevated on the blockchain. I think one reason why is because I was saying at the very beginning of this conversation, poetry is a really interesting art form. It's very unique because language, in a sense, is both infinitely reproducible and immaterial and ephemeral but also has like a lot of physical components as well and is also one of our most ancient and enduring technologies. I think like blockchain is a really interesting place to explore all the inherent juxtapositions and contradictions that poetry is all about. I have also believed for a long time in my own work that poetry in and of itself is a technology and that poems are code and code has a lot to do with poetry. And I know we're getting down to the wire, so I won't go into it too much, but there's a lot of resonance between the way that algorithm works and how patterns function and the way that poetry and poetic language work to encode experience and emotion. So I think the verse verse has been really sort of touched and excited by a lot of the interest in what we're doing with poetry here in Web3, which to be honest, we didn't expect at all. But I think it's because there's this really deep-seated resonance between poetry and technology that a lot of us, I think, just intuit. People like Herbert Franke and a lot of the sort of great figures towering over this space also really understood that there's something inherently poetic about computation and about code and about generativity so I think we're really looking to explore all those things in myriad ways and to kind of explore where poetry can live on the blockchain as NFTs, but also kind of look at the ways that poetry is evolving outside and off the blockchain too. I think I mentioned this to you before, so I'll just drop it in. But 
what we're working on right now, I think is a really interesting project that probably is right up your alley too, because it's a deeply sort of generative and AI driven concept. But we were really excited to recently onboard one of my favorite poets who has ever lived, the poet Allen Ginsberg, who is, I'm sure many of you know, is one of the great figures of the Beat Generation and who is an extremely experimental writer who did a lot of exploration of technology in terms of utilizing voice recordings and multimedia and collaborating with artists and using photography in his work in lots of different ways. Uh, and also did a lot of algorithmic work. He did a lot of cut-ups and inspired by people like William Burroughs and Brian Geisen was sort of taking language and figuring out ways to, in an analog fashion, generate new language from existing language. I've always felt a really, really deep affinity with Ginsberg in lots of ways, even though I don't think he's necessarily someone that you think about when you think about AI poetry. But we were really excited to have the opportunity to work with his estate and to work with the Tezos Foundation as well and Fahey Klein Gallery, who's currently exhibit exhibiting some of Ginsberg's amazing black and white photography of some of the famous folks in his circle. And we're also collaborating with Ross Goodman on this project as well. But we're all kind of working together to take Ginsburg's amazing body of work, both his imagery and his words, and to use AI to sort of turbocharge this archive, this corpus of information, and enable readers and scholars and just anyone who's interested in Ginsburg to use technology to look really engage with his work in interesting ways. And that can be something something like generating a poem that sounds like Ginsburg in response to one of his photographs. And in the future, it might be being able to actually use an interface where we can actually kind of explore and arrange and delve into just the treasure trove of all the language that he's left behind and use AI to really get in deeply and understand a lot of the connections in his, in his work. Anyway, I, I will stop talking because I know we're over time, but it's a project that I'm really, really excited about. Everyone at the Verse Verse has been working on it for a long time, and it's been a labor of love. We can't wait for the official launch, which is going to be soon. It's in September, actually. No, that sounds very interesting. I'm looking forward to that project. And we can extend the, the conversation. I, I just set the time at one hour, just in case the guests have other things to do. Usually... Uh, there are different meetings, but I'm happy to chat a bit more if you have time, Sasha, about the first verse. I wanted to ask you for those that are hearing about the verse verse for the first time and are interested in poetry and, and their practice and similar artists that are exploring that medium. Besides this project that's coming out in September from Allen, which other project? I know. You did a collaboration with Federal Files, the Verse First did that exhibition. Are there other other projects that you think would be interesting for people that want to get their feet wet into NFT poetry or poetry in general? Oh, definitely. Well, thank you for asking about that. There's a treasure trove of poems at theverseverse.com, many of which are sold, some of which are just sort of available to read and explore. But yeah, we launched at the end of 2021, November of 2021. And I actually don't think I mentioned before, my co-founders are two wonderful writers, Anna Maria Caballero and Callan Iwamoto, who I met, I think I met Callan first actually on Hicket Nook. So way back in those early Hicket Nook days on Tezos, Callan was one of the few writers 
who I encountered and she was doing really amazing crypto native conceptual fiction experiments. And I instantly fell in love with her work. She's just really brilliant. And we both met um, Anna Maria through Ether Poems, which is a project that came out, I think, in the summer of 2021 and was a cool kind of collaborative on-chain poetry experiment with a lot of really cool writers in the community who are many of whom are still active and still around. But yeah, we all met through those through those platforms and basically just wanted the verse first to be a place where writers could come and sort of celebrate poetry and, and have sort of help amplifying what they were doing and a place to share. And that's, I hope, what it's become. We have three sort of main focuses in terms of our curatorial framework. We have, like I said we before, there's three co-founders and we kind of, we're all very different in terms of the kinds of writing that we do. So we have three sort of curatorial buckets that reflect, I think, our individual interests in a lot of ways, although there's a lot of crossover too. But Anna Maria is another writer who, like me, is from a very traditional writing background. She's very interested in sort of the connections between word and image, has really sort of put a lot of love into curating collaborations between poets and artists and sort of helping writers find collaborators to bring their work to life in different visual forms and aesthetic forms. One of the projects that she's been involved with or that she's sort of spearheaded and has worked on with our community manager, Elizabeth Sweet, is a project called Poesia di Protesta, which is an ongoing collection of protest poems written by women. I think there's both collections are on object.com actually and are accessible from the verse first. They're really powerful poems. They're the first two collections are written in Spanish actually and they represent a really beautiful diversity of voices and aesthetic styles and just really kind of show lots of very interesting innovative ways that the sort of age-old relationship between poetry and art can be evolved as a result of integrating technology. So that's sort of the first bucket. And then we have another section of our gallery, which is focused on conceptual art. And that's really sort of Callan's purview, more experimental projects, things that are maybe more crypto native that are really utilizing blockchain technology in a very intimate, embedded way. And we have been fortunate to have both really legendary conceptual poets like Christian Book um, in the mix there, but also really amazing crypto native artists or crypto artists like Kevin Abosh, who's been part of um, the conceptual wing of our gallery. It's been really sort of fun seeing all the new things that are happening there. And then the third section, which is sort of the one that's near and dear to my heart, is focused on generative text and AI and using technology to sort of innovate the creation of language. We have two projects within that arena that I'm really proud of and that we are very enthusiastic about and that I think your audience will probably like to know about if they don't already. And one is called GenText and GenText is a series where we we kind of pair up, we kind of play matchmaker and we pair a traditional poet with either a creative coder or a crypto artist and we ask them both to use AI to bring a poem to life. And for a lot of the folks that are involved in these collaborations, it's the first time they're using AI in their work or the first time they're using AI in their writings. It's been a way to introduce this tool that, in my experience, has been very intimidating to a lot of traditional writers. It's been a way to sort of invite them to test the waters and to experiment in a way that's friendly and hopefully not intimidating. And I think we've done five, six issues now, all of which are available on theverseverse.com. 
under the heading GenText. And the other project, which I'll just talk about super quickly, but it's something that we launched last year in collaboration with Ross Goodwin, who I mentioned earlier, who's just one of the amazing pioneers of AI language. It's a project called Versa. And Versa, obviously, is kind of a play our name, the verse verse, but Versa is the name of an autonomous emerging poet who is powered by AI and trained on the voices of all the human writers in the collective. So kind of similar to the approach that I took with technology, we've compiled all the poems written by all the human members of the collective into a training data set, which continues to evolve as we bring new works into the gallery. And and that training data set goes to fine-tune a language model, which we then use to generate poems with various approaches to prompts. But it's basically just kind of an ongoing experiment. We just couldn't not do it. It was something we've been thinking about for a while. And it's sort of a way to explore how an AI can also reflect the voice, not just of a particular writer, or not just of a particular style, but to sort of be the voice of all of us and to show show interesting things about the verse first that we might not be able to see otherwise. It's been a really, really cool project so far. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for sharing all those fantastic projects. I really enjoy when artists collaborate, especially if they come from different mediums. That combination of generative artists, coded artists with poets, I think that's fantastic. Th- those projects sound amazing. I really like this innovative way how how you are using the different creations and expanding the data set to create upcoming projects or upcoming collections. That sounds really interesting. It's basically something that couldn't have been done before. When we look back 20, 30 years ago, it's a really a true new art form. I'm really excited about that. We'll take a deeper look. And for everybody that's been here for the whole hour, thank you a lot. If you miss part of the of the space or if you are interested in the information Sasha has been sharing, the different artists, collection artworks, the verse verse, all these links will be in the podcast description. Remember I'll share these through my newsletter and the different podcasting platforms. You can listen to the whole thing, you can listen after whenever you have more time. Every Monday, I'm doing these spaces with exciting guests like Sasha from the generative and the AI art space. Also with collectors and creators, I have a lot of amazing guests coming up and doing different and unique things like what Sasha has been describing. And Sasha, just to close, I think we will be exciting to hear your thoughts and very insightful for other artists. We, we already mentioned your art practice. We mentioned how you got started. We mentioned some of your upcoming projects. But I wonder if you could give advice for aspiring artists, poets that would like to break into the space. What will you tell them today, 2023, August? You've been around for a while. What would be your advice for them? Ooh, great question. Well, I think maybe it's two things. One is, and I would say this to anyone on or offline, but I think the first thing is if you want to create poetry in any way, shape or form, including on the blockchain, the most important thing to do is to read and to do your research and to really be an active participant as a reader and as an audience member. I know a lot of people, aspiring poets or aspiring writers who want to publish 
and they send things off to journals or they send things out to editors without really reading the magazine or reading the journal. I can sometimes see that happening too in this space where people kind of want to be part of something, but they don't spend very much time collecting from an ecosystem or being part of a platform or getting to know their fellow writers or artists. I think to me, that's been the most important piece of all this was that before I started minting way back when, I really spent time to understand different platforms and ecosystems and to kind of find the places and find the people who felt like home to me and where I thought my work fit. And I think that that was a hugely important part of the puzzle for me because this is such a big and overwhelming space at times. In the offline world, I really think carefully about where I send a poem to be published or what publishing house I want to work with. I I think the same is very true here. So that's something that I often tell people is just to spend time researching the different opportunities that are available to you, whether it's a gallery or a platform market or blockchain, whatever the case may be. But the, and then the other thing that I would say I've been thinking about this a lot because the two areas that I'm really kind of deeply involved with here, AI and blockchain, have sort of been such, they've become so trendy. But I've been working in AI for a long time. And I did this for a long time before anyone cared. And I did it even when people were telling me not to. And I think my takeaway from a lot of it is just when you're interested in something and when you can't not pursue something that fascinates you. And those are the things that are worth doing. And I see a lot of people that are kind of jumping on bandwagons because they think they should, but maybe their heart's not really in it or they're trying to do something because everyone else is doing it. And I just think it's so important to remember, especially at times like this, as an artist, you really have to follow your gut and you really have to do what you're obsessed with. And that's what leads you to the interesting stuff in the end. Just follow your fascinations and really do what you can't not do. That's amazing. Thanks so much, Sasha, for sharing all these very interesting insights on your career, for your time. Looking forward for all those collections you mentioned, all those artworks that are coming to the Verseverse and your upcoming drops, as they call them. I hope to have you here at some point in the future, Sasha. I hope to have you back here in a couple of months and, and see what you are up to. I know. I hope I get to see you in person again soon. In the meantime, thank you so much for this invitation and congratulations to you on the podcast, which is amazing. I've you know, been so excited listening to the other episodes and I can't wait to hear what you have coming up. You are just such a, an amazing force in this community and what you do for all of us is so important and really elevating and amplifying and kind of pointing us in the right directions. Thank you for everything you do. Really appreciate you taking the time to have this chat. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that. My pleasure. Hope to talk to you soon and see you soon, Sasha. Have a, a great day and thanks everybody that tuning in. Talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, everyone. 